Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Remember, a camera is just a piece of metal. It's just a, it's just a, a conduit to your heart and your soul and there's quite often times where you travel in the company of that piece of metal but you feel no reason at any point during a working day to engage in a relationship with that piece of metal because there's nothing interesting in front of your eyes. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with David Yarrow. David is famous for his monochrome wildlife photography, as well as working with A-list celebrities such as Cindy Crawford and Cara Delevingne. He's travelled the world with his work and offers a glimpse into the world of art photography and specifically the business of travelling with a camera. David spoke to us from Dallas, actually on his 55th birthday, and in the middle of a busy press day, and he managed to squeeze in a chat with me just before his slot with Fox News. In this episode, we talk about art and authenticity versus business, how to generate ideas, and how he managed to go from the guy who took an iconic photo of Maradona at the 1986 World Cup to his work in conservation. Okay, over to David Yarrow. A good place to start is for you to just introduce to yourself, tell me a bit about your past, your professional history, and how you've ended up where you are. My name's David Yarrow. I'm sadly, I'm 55. I'm 55 today, which is a, it's a miserable experience. Um, I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. Um, I'm speaking to you from Dallas, Texas, and I am a photographer. I am not a photographer that likes to be categorized. Others may choose to categorize me, but I, I started off as in sport. Uh, I've done fashion. I've done um, landscape. Uh, I've done wildlife. I've done storytelling. Um, I, I like to move around um, um, quite fluid with a fluidity between different genres of photography. Um, I spent some time not with the camera uh, in, in Wall Street, and I think that what we tried to do is put the two things together in that I, the business model that we have, I think the genesis of that was working in Wall Street um, and understanding supply and demand. 
and um, product distribution. And now we have um, an interesting uh, business. And I do, even though I'm an artist, I am a businessman. And I think that one should not necessarily exclude the other. I think everyone has to, in 2021, think about how they sell what they do. Um, so I don't think if you're an artist or you're a creative, you're excluded from that responsibility. And uh, so I'm here in Dallas to uh, market my work, to have shows, to, to meet collectors. And then next week I'll be off in the field again. Um, and uh, I'm spending quite a bit of time in America, uh, partly because it's open during COVID. It's a lot more open than the UK. Um, if I was in the UK at the moment, I'd be stuck at home, um, not being able to take pictures and not being able to sell pictures, which would seem to be not the most sensible of things to be doing. Ace, so stupid question, but why does the business side matter so much to you? I think it is a stupid question in a way because I've got I've got people to employ, I've got bills to pay. If we didn't have uh, um, a business distribution model to sell our work, how could we create new content? And we did a shoot last week in Colorado. I think the cost of the shoot was around about four hundred thousand um, dollars. Uh, I have to pay for that. That's that's my bill to pick up. So if I didn't have a business model, uh, I'd be bust. But if you're if you're commercially successful, how can you be a trouble creative? Uh, it's an interesting question. I wonder whether Justin Timberlake gets asked that question whether he's a troubled creative. Um, you can. I'm troubled because you have angst in terms of whether you're having creative blocks and whether you're not getting it right in terms of your uh, exploration of ideas and the authenticity of those ideas. And that, that, that kind of creative block is something that we, I wrestle with a lot. Um, uh, because without authenticity of ideas, again, you've got a little bit of an issue. So that side of things is probably where the greatest angst comes. And so do you develop concepts because they're interesting to you or because you think they'll sell? Now, that's a good question. Um, we have a thing called Commodagate in the office. And Commodagate is basically the, the, the premise that if I went to those islands in Indonesia uh, to try and photograph that giant lizard in a way that's not been photographed before, i.e. kind of immersive and ground up and pin sharp. And if we achieved our goal and I came back to our boat or wherever we were staying and I said to everyone, I've got the shot, I've got the shot, the people might then return turn to me and say, well, you've got the shot, but who's going to want to buy a picture of a giant lizard? Um, and the answer is probably very few people. And so Commodogate addresses this trade-off between um, what is a good idea and what is a commercial idea. If you, if you start off in a week um, with 100 ideas in a bowl and the first filter is authenticity, 
I think that first filter knocks out 90% of the ideas. You've then got 10, bowl, 10 bowls left in the bowl. Commerciality could well knock out nine of the 10, which is how you go from 100 ideas down to one. Um, those, those are the two key filters to me, authenticity and commerciality. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so have you always applied that process or is that learnt? Um, you learn, I think, by your mistakes. And if you have an idea that is authentic but not commercial, you you, you don't make that mistake again. I remember going and photographing uh, one of the most dangerous uh, towns in Nigeria uh, which is called Makoko. It's near Lagos and it's on stilts. And even the police don't go there. Um, and we uh, we paid off the local chief. Um, and it's kind of self-police. So you have to you have to work with the chiefs of the kind of tribal leaders there. And, and uh, we paid him $5,000 in cash. And as a result of that, we got some heavyweights to protect us in uh, a fairly lawless part of the world. Um, and I'm photographing in the water. It was filthy water. And I got a, I think I got a very strong picture of people do their shopping. They go around in boats amongst this kind of um, village on, on, on stilts. Um, I think there's, I think about a hundred thousand people live there in Makoka. Uh, and I thought I got a, a really strong image uh, typically, there's a lot in it. Says you can look at it for a long time, and I think the whole exercise of being in Lagos, doing the organisation, um, paying off the fixers, paying off the the warlord or whatever he was, um, probably costs us around about thirty, forty thousand dollars. And um, I think we've sold one picture of it because who who can really relate to that kind of place? Uh, it's, it's dark, satanic, grim, extraordinary, but I just don't know whether it was commercial. Well, clearly, manifestly, it wasn't. Um, so I think that uh, you, so you, you learn from that. I say, well, I'm not going to go back and do that again <laughs> because it just, whilst it might be good for your artistic juices, you know, you are allowed to do things just in the same way that Hollywood actors might go on a stage to earn one hundredth of what they might earn from a big blockbuster Marvel film. And they do it for their own enrichment and to test their skills and, and because it's a challenge. But they, they wouldn't do that the whole time. They would just, they would say occasionally we could do that. And, and I, there, are, there are things that I would do that I know aren't necessarily commercial but they're the right thing like i went to north korea and i uh, and i knew north korea would not necessarily be commercial but it would be relevant i went i covered the australian bushfires this time last year or maybe uh 13 months ago and again i don't know whether people want to buy pictures of uh incinerated kangaroos and koalas um well they don't um but it was again the right thing to do because relevance does matter to me as a as a photographer i think it's a little bit of a holy grail that sometimes you 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 want to stay close to what is what is relevant 
Yeah, that brings me round. Uh, what matters to you? Why do it? You know, I think a lot of people are have been folk forced to address their personal lives and their journey in life during COVID um, because there's a lot of time for introspection and self-flagellation as well, I guess. Um, I uh, I believe that uh, none of us are getting out of here alive, as someone once said, uh, in time. Uh, and I couldn't think of anything worse. I feel very sorry for people during COVID that don't have anything to do. I do feel very sorry for for them, and and uh, I'm blessed that I've I've got the opportunity to go and do something. Uh, and we've never been more busy than we are right now. Uh, um, why do what I do? Um, well, I'm not going to sit at home and do nothing. Uh, I love meeting interesting people. I love meeting talented people, and um, I'm a sponge to to other people's talents and we have a platform now where you know i'm 55 um i guess i've got maybe 20 years more doing this um and i want to make make the most of it and hopefully leave a legacy of of a few decent pictures at the end of the day why does the legacy matter well i call it my kids not to think i was a complete loser and their kids (laughs) and uh uh i quite like to uh yeah, I'd like to have a, a body of work that uh, I've that people turn around and say, "Well, you know, that was a picture that I've never seen before," and um, I'm very proud to have it in my home. And uh, it's a, it's it's got a philosophical question: Why does it matter? Because once we're dead, we're not going to really know an awful lot. But um, in the same way, you want your kids to be brought into the world the right way and have the right values. I hope that because if it's if it's not it's not about material gain. It's not um, about um, um, trophies like that. I think um, I'm I'm very lucky in that um, because I have uh, I, I work and I get satisfaction from that. I don't need to do things that perhaps other people might do because they don't perhaps have working life as, as as I do. Um so it's not about bigger better cars or bigger better houses or anything like that. Um or a bigger share portfolio or anything. It's it's uh, it's more about uh, the accumulation of a body of work. So this is getting sort of philosophical and heavy, but if you're not motivated by money but you are obviously highly commercially successful does there come a point in your career where you think screw it i'm going to stop doing this you know from my um my test i'm going to do the 10 ideas that interest me rather than the one that's commercially you know um potentially lucrative um i've got i've got 11 staff to look after um and i've got 15, I think, shareholders who backed me those years ago. And if I went down the route of some sort of spiritual enlightenment and I'm just going to do uh, what interests me, whether people like it or not, 
I think I would have let down a few people who who um, might not therefore either get paid or might not get um, what they were looking to get out of the company. So um, I doubt I'd go, I'd go down that route. Um, and I, I think we can always find ways the project that we're all here in America doing um, which is my kind of anthology to the Wild West from 150 years ago. Um, I could go down routes there that might interest me, but might not be commercially successful. Um, but I would see that as being a failure. Um, I think it would be, if you ask this question to a, a Spielberg or a Ridley Scott or a Scorsese, saying would you be interested in doing a movie that appeals to you because you're interested in the subject but you don't care whether anyone watches it i think they would they would i don't know but i think they would see that as being an odd thing to do because they the ultimate validation is that other people want to watch it or like it. Uh, I think it would be incredibly indulgent to go and do something just purely because, and, and naive. You know, if I take um, my local football club up in Scotland uh, that's had a very inglorious past, um, it's a club called Green at Morton, I could go and take some, I don't know, go and try and do something to do with Green Morton. I'd rather enjoy going up there and, I don't know, trying to create something. But no one's going to be in the slightest bit interested. <laughs> so but that's really interesting because obviously there's a price point to the photography that means that it's not, you know, um, accessible by the masses in print. That's obviously very deliberate and specific. Does that matter? Is what you do elitist? Um, no, because uh, we have we have uh, books that come out. We have shows around the world where everyone can go and come to the shows and come and see the work. Um, so I I think that would be like saying that um, Damien Hurst is elitist or, or Banksy's elitist because so few people, people can afford to buy the work. I would say that art enfranchises everyone because you can you can always go and see it. We have shows around the world where people can go and show they see the art or buy the books. And um I I hope I'm generous with my time with, with people that come and see me and talk about what I do. So no I don't think it's I don't think it's elitist. Yeah, that's fair. So how do you put a price on art? How do you decide something's worth three grand or 30 grand or 300? Um, you know, the um, the art market is, people say it's unregulated, but I would say it's actually very regulated because it's, it's self-policed um, and uh, you play by the rules of the people that have been in the art market for a long time, which is why a mistake that I believe some photographers may have made is to vertically integrate their 
food chain, i.e., they take they go and take a picture, and then that picture goes up on the wall of a eponymous gallery that they own. Um, David Yarrow will never have a David Yarrow gallery. We are uh, blessed by being represented by 30 great galleries around the world. And they find the customers. And to an extent, they determine the prices. We, we have a fairly good idea of how to price things. Um, and because the majority of the pictures that I take are crap, um, um, you know, we, we, if I can take 10 good pictures a year, that's the goal. And therefore, if they've got to that level where I consider them to be worthy enough of being printed the size of a pool table, we only print 12 anyway. If we take a, if I take a good picture, there's only, there's only 12 available, um, uh, in one size, there's two sizes, so there's 24. Uh, and we learn from the mistakes that, that other, maybe other photographers have made that if you have a good picture, don't make it an addition of 500. Make it really hard to get hold of. Make it make it a small addition and you'll do much better that way. Um, and um, you look at... You'll, you'll you'll know the picture of Terry O'Neill, a great British photographer. You know he was married to Faye Dunaway, and um, took that picture of Faye Dunaway after she won the Oscars. You know with the dressing gown and the Oscar by the pool in LA, and then took the famous picture of uh, Bridget Bardo with the cigarette coming out of her mouth, uh, and then took some great stuff of Sinatra. Um, you know, and, and the on the with the kind of brat pack in Miami. Um, and all those three pictures, there's probably 10,000 of them knocking around the world. Um, and because there's 10,000 of them, even though they're far better than the pictures that I take, it means that the price is, is, is fairly low. Whereas if there's only 12, if someone really wants it, he's going to have to pay for it. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I'm fascinated by the concept of 10 photos a year. You know, as a professional photographer, undefined photographer, you must shoot in the tens of thousands region, right? Um, well, not really, because um, remember a camera is just a piece of metal. It's just a, it's just a, a conduit to your heart and your soul and there's quite often times where you travel in the company of that piece of metal but you feel no reason at any point during a working day to engage in a relationship with that piece of metal because there's nothing interesting in front of your eyes photography is um is about emotion. It's also, but it's also about content. And uh, as someone very smart said, it's, it sounds a little bit of a platitude, but he said, if you want to be a better photographer, put more interesting stuff in front of the camera. Um, now, um, most of our working days, there's not particularly interesting stuff in front of the camera. So I remember going to Africa about 
I don't know, three years ago, East Africa. Um, and uh, I think I came back a week later and I'd taken 11 pictures. So uh, less is more. Uh, the, everyone in the world is a photographer in 2021. So there is plurality of content. Um, and the way that you address that plurality is not with your own plurality, but with a very tough edit. I think it might be good for those who don't know, if you could just backtrack slightly and talk a bit about the work that you've done um, over your career. Yeah, I mean, I started off uh, as a kid, as a, I love sports and I love my football and growing up in Scotland, um, even though we're kind of shit at football, it was always a big part of the, you know, the conversation and, um, and I'd photograph football and even rugby and it was good to see Scotland beating England finally at rugby at the, the weekend. But the, the, um, um, I, I was never very, the only, the, the only sports I was any good at, I think took place in bars. So I always quite fancy myself as a pool player. It's a sign of a misspent youth if you're good at pool. I think table tennis as well. I think that those two things suggest that you spent quite a lot of time in student halls drinking, which is about right. Um, and uh, I started to photograph football, um, going to shitty, shitty stadiums in Scotland and in the rain, horizontal rain, watching Wraith Rovers play Cowden Beath. It's not particularly glamorous. And working in very tough lighting conditions because the floodlights would be crap. Um, but it was a good training for me. And um, I managed to get to the World Cup in Mexico, uh, 1986, uh, Maradona's World Cup. And I got accreditation, which meant that I was just 20 years old. I could be on the pitch. And I... Um, I got accredited for the final, which was very exciting. You know, up until that final, I hadn't taken a decent picture of the whole of the tournament. I wasn't particularly good at what was called follow focus. It was the days before autofocus and cameras. And um, I, I just wasn't, uh, in terms of the execution with the camera, there were far better people out there than me. But I got the shot of Maradona at the final, which is obviously after his death has been printed a lot. And um, it kind of saved my bacon a little bit. That pit, one picture uh, was really the only thing that I got out of the World Cup in 86. But I met people. I, I got the bug. I just wanted to, you know, someone someone once said, if, you, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um in Mexico, I was the poorest photographer, I'm sure, that was there, which is the right place to be because you're dragged up by other people. Um, and then I did Olympics, um, uh, World Cups, U.S. Masters, um, big sports tournaments, quite a bit of skiing, skiing, golf, football. Um, and uh, But I worried, I worried a little bit about the fact that there seemed to be a huge number of sports photographers taking the same picture. Um, if you imagine um, the men's downhill um, Olympic sort of blue ribbon event, and if you've got 300 photographers um, positioned around one big jump in the men's downhill to get the gold medal winner coming over that point where he's defying gravity, 
and they've, they're all good photographers. Surely there are too many photographers on that one bump taking that guy because how's there room for 300 different versions of, of, of that? Um, and I, I, so I, I was slightly concerned. I didn't really see how the, it was going to stack up longer term. And whilst I had enormous respect for a lot of the that community, um, I just thought it was. I just didn't see it as a career. Um, and you know, a bit of parental pressure, a bit of peer pressure, um, and it was it was nineteen eighty eight and. You know, Oliver Stone had just done that film Wall Street with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen, and I think everyone wanted to be Gordon Gecko. That that kind of it was the time of yuppies and all that kind of stuff. And I got a job offer working for an investment bank in London, and I think my job offer was fifteen and a half thousand sterling, and, and my job offer to go and be a sports photographer for Getty was about fifteen and a half thousand as well, and. I took the decision to put the cameras away and join a bank. Um, but I think a lot of people that knew me then knew me as someone that was very keen on photography. And they all, I, I remember living in a flat in London and I, I just rather indulgently had my pictures everywhere so that people could see that I had a different side to me. I, I, I don't think I was particularly comfortable wearing investment banker shoes i think i was much more comfortable holding a camera but you get you get on that um hamster wheel and it's difficult to get out difficult to get off it um and so i did the whole sort of cliche story i i I, um set up my own firm after a while set up a hedge fund before they became well known to other people. Um, and um, got married, um, made some money, had some ki- had two kids, uh, started employing far too many people and too much pressure and didn't really, wasn't very happy in my life and marriage didn't work. And uh, much as I loved her and the kids and my road to redemption if you like was my escaping escapism was photography um you know when people react to if you if you're if if your marriage doesn't work you i'm sure a lot of people would feel the same that it's your kind of life implodes a little bit um because it is the most important thing and and uh, people can react to it different ways some people can you know, go on a massive bender or whatever. And my my reaction was to go off to places like Greenland and Namibia or Iceland or the most remote parts of the world where I didn't I could just um, be on my own and think and and um, rather than have to pick up phones to lawyers or whatever. And that was that's that was that was about fourteen fifteen years ago. And uh, uh, yeah, I think. I think photography, it's difficult to, I think, be a strong photographer if you have a, a emotional void. Um, I'm quite an emotional person, and I hopefully it shows in my photography. I think if you are, if your emotional intelligence or your EQ is um, 
a shortcomings. I think it can be sometimes quite difficult to portray portray things in a way that is going to emotionally engage with other people. Yeah, definitely. God, that's really interesting. And so if it was an, a, a form of escape and escapism at the start, did you were you venturing out into the world to do it professionally or were you just looking for opportunities to immerse yourself in the natural world? Uh, that's a good question. To begin with, it was uh, very much escapism rather than there was no clear path in terms of monetization. I think around about 2010, you know, I was spending quite a lot of time for, trying to photograph great white sharks in South Africa, coming out of the water and predating. And when we, when I finally got a picture, um, after about 10 days in the water, I remember the picture going kind of viral and it being printed everywhere. And, and I got my check back from the kind of agency that sells it to the newspapers. And I can't remember what the check was, but let's say it was about $10,000. And I remember working out that it, it had cost me 14000 to take the picture. So I thought this has got to be the world's worst business model that I've got this picture and it's actually I'm down 4000 on it. Um, and then I got a lawyer calling me up from Houston, Texas saying, you know, I'm, I'm called Jaws. I'm an attorney. I want one of them pictures from my wall. How much do you want? And it wasn't the, really the way that I looked at things then, and people wasn't the way that most people looked at things in photography. So I said, I don't know, four or five. I think he might have said $6,000. And he went, $6,000? And I said, obviously, I thought I'd gone way too high. Um, and I said, well, listen, we'll, we'll, fray, we'll deliver it to Houston for free and whatever. And he said, no, no, no. I'm going to have three of them. And that was my epiphany. That was when the penny dropped, um, that the way to monetize photography in this new era for this new generation um, was through fine art rather than distribution or selling to magazines or newspapers. That is amazing. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, but after you took the photos of the sharks and things, you realized the way it was all going to go. What did you do? Um, I failed. Um, I remember... Uh... Because in order to build up um, a group of galleries that are going to back you, you have to start somewhere. So if you go into if you go into a gallery, and as artists do all the time, and and I see it and I feel for them, and you go into a gallery and say, "Listen, I'm a photographer. Will you represent me?" 
uh, one of the first questions the gallery will ask is, well, what if they like your work, what other galleries represent you? And to begin with, the answer is going to be none. So you've got a you've got a little bit of a chicken and egg situation in that uh, galleries, by and large, want to represent well-known artists if they're leading galleries. I remember there was a gallery in Palm Beach that we really wanted to work with, um, and they turned me down five times um, and just said, "You know, you're not your work's not strong enough." Um, I think there's two ways you can react to rejection. One is to think that they're wrong. And of course, that's often a tendency. The other is to know that they're right and just try and get better. I remember some of the first galleries we worked with were, you know, fairly low, low quality. Um, and um, now, now we're very fortunate, but it's it's taken it's taken eight years to upgrade the the horses in our stable, if you like, to get them to the level. And then it becomes self-propagating, provided your work is strong. But I look back at some of the galleries that used to represent us, and they were like kind of Starbucks, small Starbucks where a bomb's gone off inside. And they weren't, they weren't the kind of greatest, greatest of places, but bit by bit, and it's never, never a finished job, uh, but bit by bit we've kind of got there. So how much of what you do is taking photographs? How much of the skill is everything else? I think there's three parts to the to what I do. There's idea creation. Um, then there is idea execution. And then there is the selling of the content. I think they're all equally important. They're all... You can't do it without... Uh, all those three things. Um, but I, I probably photograph this year will be a little bit different because there's not really any point having any shows in the first six months of the year because people can't come to them. Um, so our, in 2021, um, the first half of the year will be very um, content orientated. And then the second six months will be much more about, hopefully with the world opening up, will be much more about selling that content do you enjoy every aspect of what you do uh no uh you know i there there um i I love meeting people um and having the kind of playing the entertainer type of things and the showman and giving talks doing you know with a lot of people there that's that's fun um but after you've done that for a while you want to get back into the field and once you've been out in the field, you probably want to be back in a nice hotel like I am right now. Um, so it's, I think it's getting a balance right. I think in 2019, I must have taken about 250 flights. Uh, and that, after a while, can get boring, Secure, going through endless security and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there are, there are days where it can be fairly frustrating and you can be a long way from home. And I think, I don't know about you, but I'm so bored of myself uh, that I would rather be with anyone other than myself. Um, so when, you, when, you, when you're lacking company, 
for a long time that 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 can be quite tough yeah do you think you're quite hard on yourself oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah um i think you you should always be your own biggest critic um and um i i yeah i i have moments of quiet satisfaction i took a picture last week last uh thursday um thursday morning i took a big picture um and um i was able to come home that lunchtime to the small hotel in colorado and um have some very good drinks with the team and uh you know the wheels slightly came off and then we can celebrate when we've taken a big picture but that's it's quite once in a while god it's it's a very interesting insight i'm i guess i please take this in a sort of friendly way but do you think that you have a need to prove something to the world um <laughs> it's an interesting one uh interesting question i um I'm with my kids. Um, I give them, I've got a son, the daughter. I give them an awful lot of affirmation. Um, I think it's very important all the time to tell your children that um, they're great. Um, most of the time when they, you know, might not be great the whole time, um, but give them, show them love and, 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 and tell them that they're doing doing good things. I probably didn't have that in my childhood quite so much. Um, and maybe that is um, a manifest, this, my, my, the way I behave is a slight manifestation of that. Uh, but uh, I think it's always good to, always good to try and be your own biggest critic and, and, and push yourself a little bit. I wonder if, if you ask that to, great filmmakers what they'd say uh, you know there's a, there's a great quote from uh, the um the f- old motor racing driver mario andretti um and he said um desire is the key to motivation but it's the constancy in your commitment to the pursuit of excellence that will allow you to achieve your goals. And I think that second sentence is very important. There's lots of words, constancy, commitment, pursuit of excellence. And I identify that. I think we are fairly constant in our commitment to not excellence because that's presumptuous, but the pursuit of excellence. And so how often do you feel you achieve it? Well, 10 times a year, <laughs> if I can get the 10 pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is a bit of a curveball. Um, I, you know, I'm aware, very aware that you're kind of doing a, a tour, tour kind of PR run, lots of telly, et cetera, at the minute. And these conversations are always their work, right? You know, part of them can be fun, but they're work. I want to know the stuff that no one ever asks. Like, what are the questions that people should be asking that they haven't? I guess, I guess the big one is, um, 
and this is a bit bizarre, but people, if people, if people say, you know, if you look at how, um, I guess things have been good for me over the last four or five years, um, what's the principal reason for that? Um, and I would say it's probably because I didn't get remarried. <laughs> and that because my kids are uh, ones at university, ones just finishing school, I could not do this job and be married because she would, she should leave me. And this happens to a lot of people that do what I do um, because it is just not a lifestyle that's compatible with marriage unless that partner works with you and comes on tour with you and that does happen for a few people that uh one one big example was a, a friend of mine a great photographer called paul nicklin who, whose partner follows and also a photographer follows him around but and i know it's a rather odd thing to say but i would not be here had my marriage survived i would not be here because i can't see how the journey would have got to this point because we would have gone from a situation of living together from to me being abroad 300 days a year, and that would have not been tenable. So I know it sounds a little bit of a... Uh, um, it almost sounds as if I'm being comical, but actually I'm, I'm speaking the exact truth that the biggest thing, the worst thing that happened in my life allowed me to be in the position that I'm in today. And you've absolutely no intention of seeking out a new relationship. Oh, I've got I've got a girlfriend, um, um, but um, she has she has her eyes wide open as to what the fact that I might not be the best boyfriend in the world. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, I work in the sector where people are away for six months of the year. That's what we do. So, yeah, and so you don't think you'll ever change? You don't think you'll ever stop? Oh, I do. I mean, I think one or two. I got COVID in October, and um, and I'm not getting any younger. I'm not as fit as I was, and I pretend that I'm still a kid. And I've got um, I'm going these sort of long COVID things where I'm just not quite right yet, and uh, it's nothing, nothing bad. It's just it's funny. I just I burp about. 50 times a day when I've never used to burp before. And that's my long COVID. Um, <laughs> it can be quite embarrassing at times. You know, like when you've had a Coca-Cola and you just let rip. And I, 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 um, now I just do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think long COVID, because everyone everyone has different symptoms of long COVID. And you can, you can put down any behavior. You say, no, it's COVID. It's my long COVID. And people can't argue with it because not enough research has been done. So you you can you can be caught you can be caught sleepwalking down a corridor even worse, and you just turn around and say it's not me it's long COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think uh, I just have to um, I do have to take it slightly easier. So um, as we start to draw to a close, you've you've travelled a lot you've seen a lot. How do you feel about the world? Are you an optimist, pessimist? 
Oh, I'm an awesome point of being anything other than an optimist. Um, I think we should come out of COVID all as better people, um, uh, more aware of our own mortality, more aware of our own equality. It doesn't matter whether you are the most famous sports star in the world or whether you're a very famous politician or a creative. We're all the same. We're all human beings. Um, and I think the world will be a better place after having endured this because I think kindness and collaboration um, and sense of equality will all be good factors. Um, and where I am in America, you know, you could, you could say that America's had a, had a terrible 18 months. You, I can see why people could, would say that. We all know what we're talking about, whether it be um, the events in the Senate, uh, which I was, I was in America then, and, and the whole denouement of the presidency, um, whether it be the events in Minneapolis and actually lots of other places in the whole um, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and then, of course, COVID. It's been a fairly tumultuous 18 months for Americans. Um, but this is the country with the greatest self-belief in the world. And I, I believe that America would lead the world out of out of uh, this generational crisis. And in 2023, it will be a there'll be a glorious period for art, for film, for creatives, because I think people have had time to consider and take stock. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Okay. We'll leave it there. Mate, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. It's edited by Kate Bullivant. You can keep in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can stay up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.com.